Hello and welcome to Behind the Bearcat. This is the podcast where the Northwest Missouri State University Career Services Office talks with Northwest faculty, staff, students, alumni, and friends to hear about their career journeys, how they got to where they are, and how they became Bearcats. I'm Career Services Assistant Director Travis Klein. And I'm Hannah Christian, the Director of Career Services here at Northwest. And today's guest... Hi, my name is Mark Corson. I'm a professor of geography and uh, I chair the Department of Natural Sciences, which is biology, chemistry, geology, physics, nanoscale science, pre-nursing, pre-engineering, and some other stuff. Um, I'm also this year serving serving as the program coordinator for the Emergency and Disaster Management Program, of which I was one of the founding members. Welcome. I'm very excited to have you on the podcast because I know that you have had a wide array of experiences and I can't wait to hear about those. So let's go back in the life of Dr. Corson all the way back to the very beginning and tell us what was your first job? Uh, My first job was when I was 13 and my dad said, no allowance for you. He managed a uh, Best Western Motel in downtown San Francisco and said, come down on Sundays from one to uh, five, I'll pay you a dollar and a quarter an hour out of pocket, and you're going to learn how to work for a living. So what were you doing? I mean, actual tasks. Sleeping and janitorial tasks and things of that nature, taking out the garbage, chores, essentially. All the stuff he didn't want to do that. (laughs) First off, that was probably illegal child labor, but really his (laughs) intent was to teach me the value of money and work. It's interesting that subsequently, once I was of age, um, I worked at the the Flamingo Best Western eventually from the age of 16 to 21, uh, working as as an actual houseman, a janitor, uh, all the way up to the point where he um, hurt his back. And I worked his job one summer when I was 21. We'll tell you what, if you want to understand your parents work their job. That is a good piece of insight. So, okay. I, once again, so many questions. You are now at this point in your career, you're chair of natural sciences, which includes all of those things. Um, you're teaching in the geography department, but then of course you started at the best Western. So if you could just regale me with how Mark Corson got from the best Western to the chair of natural sciences here in Northwest. So I was born in Washington, D.C., but I actually grew up in San Francisco, California. And of course, you know, San Francisco is a big tourist town. My dad migrated out there with the Postal Inspection Service, but eventually had to get some additional jobs and ended up being the manager of that Best Western. And so um, we, um, how do I put this? We weren't poor, but I come from very modest roots. And he told me my sophomore year of high school, he said, if you want to go to college, I have no money for you, nor will I. You have to get a job or get a scholarship. And so I said, uh, I really don't like working jobs. I was working at 7-Eleven as well as the hotel. And I said, uh, so scholarships are it. And I really knew at that time that I wanted to go to the military. So um, I was very fortunate. I ended up with a four-year Army ROTC scholarship, which paid for a very expensive private school, the Jesuit uh, Jesuit school, the University of San Francisco, where I got my commission as a regular Army officer. What was it about the military? You said you knew you wanted to be in the military. What was it about the military that drew you to it? So I learned early on that I love working as a member of a team. I love uh, service, doing things for others. uh, And I really learned that very early on, but especially in like, like orchestra. We had a fantastic orchestra in junior high school. And San Francisco, of course, is a, a big city with big schools. And the high schools all had um, Junior Army ROTC, J-R-O-T-C. So, I mean, I remember from from being um, right next to the high school in the elementary school, looking at them saying, I want to do that someday. 
Um, and so subsequently I did. As soon as I could go to junior ROTC, I did. I learned the importance of extracurricular activities because they were necessary to be competitive for scholarships. So not only did it, and you got to understand, I was about six foot one, 130 pounds. So I was a, a tall, skinny beanpole kid. Um, but I learned the importance of, you know, doing other things besides ROTC, student government. I had my varsity letter and riflery, all city, um, Red Cross work, all sorts of extracurriculars so I could get that scholarship. But um, those are all very useful experiences that then subsequently set me up for that. Uh, and then, of course, during uh, senior ROTC in college, getting ready to, to go be an Army officer, um, I figured out I was in the right place for me. So what was that like? I mean, so you have this sort of JROTC, right, in your training, training, training. Was there any big gap or difference or did you feel like you just seamlessly went straight into Army? We, we actually had... Um, a relationship with the senior ROTC program because, of course, they want people to come to them. And we back in that day, we had something called um, they they had something called the ROTC Ranger program, and we aped that in junior ROTC. They didn't like that very much, but I actually um, went through their senior ROTC Ranger program as a high school senior. So the interesting circumstance of when I got to USF, I was already part of the elite group. Now, the good news was I was part of the elite group, but as a freshman, wasn't really certainly socially part of the elite group. And the bad news was for all of my peers in the freshman class, being part of the elite group sort of put me off of that. Um, but, you know, you get over it and we got to wear cool berets and camouflage uniforms while everyone else wore baseball hats <laughs> and green, green, green weenie uniforms. So we thought we were kind of badass back in the day. Did you study subjects there? Like, I mean, could you yeah. declare this a like good, a major? This is a good example I like to tell my students. So I started as, a, as a, a business major. I said, well, I don't know what I want to study. I just want to go to school to be in the Army. Started off in business because I thought, oh, you know, leadership management, that's a good thing for an Army officer. Um, but I didn't do very well. Frankly, I'm not much on quantitative methods. I got a D in finite math. I got a C minus in Fortran programming. Second semester, sophomore year, I was going to get a D in accounting too. And I was like, I really am not enjoying this. And I suddenly looked at one of my colleagues, their, their book bag, and it was full of government books. And I said, what are you studying? They said, well, government, which is kind of like political science and international relations and all of that um, put together. And I said, I would read these books for fun. So I changed my major and um, no more accounting. Hallelujah. My GPA went from a 276 to 385 in one semester. And that was taking 18 credits, of which five were ROTC. And I, I had found my niche because I loved what I was doing for my academics. Um, and I, I kind of joke now that I also figured out that I was crappy at accounting and being a good government person, I could squander people's money with no accountability <laughs> whatsoever. But that's not true, friends. I, Having been a public servant, we uh, take very seriously our required to be good, requirement to be good stewards of the public's money. But we let the people who passed accounting with good grades do that work. Yeah, they can sit in their cubicle and do that, and I'll go out and <laughs> take care of national security for them. How's that? I want to put a PSA for us. I constantly am telling students when they come in to ask me about, you know, I they say, I want to make a lot of money, but I'm struggling in this major. And I say, it's more valuable for you to be in a major that you love, to be able to pass the classes, to be able to graduate with the degree. Because if you don't have the degree at the end of your struggles, like, what is it all for in the end? So... Um, part of that is is matching up the things that you love reading about and studying about and talking about. Yeah, something that you're passionate and love. And then, frankly, it'll come easily to you. I absolutely agree. And don't be afraid to change your major if what you're doing is not for you. Exactly. All right. So where'd you go from there? 
So uh, in 1983, I graduated with my degree in government and a commission in the regular army, which meant that I was going to go to active duty. And um, I got my first choice of branch, and I was one of the first M1 Abrams tank officers. Now, the M1 Abrams tank actually was was created in the 70s, came into service in the 80s. It's still in service now as a much later updated version, uh, but it's 40 years old, and it's still the best tank in the world. And so I was one of the Jedi warriors. I was the first officer basic course class for that. Um, and I got my first tour of duty station. Um, I went to Kitzigan, Germany, where I was a tank platoon leader and various other things. And so I was the tank commander with my tank and my three crew members. But I also was responsible for four other tanks. And this was the Cold War. We, we really were ready to roll out in two hours. We practiced every month at all of our ammunition on our tanks. And we were ready to fight tonight. Fortunately, we deterred the godless communist menace from attacking us. Well, what what does a tank commander for those of us, I mean, myself included, what does a tank commander do? Like you say, it's you and your crew of three guys. What were you doing? So, in the tank? so you're familiar with a tank with its turret and its cannon and its machine guns and its tracks and its armor. And so a tank is basically uh, an M1 tank is uh, at this point back in my day, it was 60 tons of armor protected firepower with 105 millimeter cannon. That's that's a, about a, a, a four inch, a little over a four inch in diameter cannon. A bunch of machine guns and such could travel at 45 miles an hour. Um, and, it, and it's just a very lethal machine coupled with, you know, infantry and artillery and all of that. Uh, basically, we were the sharp end of the spear to fight the ground war. As a tank commander, you're responsible for where the tank goes. You're responsible for who, it, what it's going to shoot. You're responsible for working with the other tanks. As a tank platoon leader, you're not only responsible for your tank, but you're responsible for the other three tanks. Uh, and to make sure you're doing what in concert with the other 14 tanks in your company, what you do, what you're supposed to do, shoot who you're supposed to shoot, go where you're supposed to go. And I got to tell you, it was exciting back in the day. It was exciting. Now, I'm glad we didn't have to fight any real wars. But uh, back then, we just tore ass all over Germany because, <laughs> I mean, it was the real deal. The Cold War was was very serious. Um, and the people out in the countryside would tolerate our maneuver damage and our noise and all, all of that, because, uh, as they would say, um, that's the sound of freedom. So uh, mm. people don't understand that now post-Cold War, but back then it was a big deal. And so, uh, yeah, and you talk about learning a lot about, you know, everything from leadership to logistics. Um, most people don't get out of school. So at the age of 21, I was responsible for four tanks, each value at $1.83 million, uh, plus all this stuff inside them, and plus uh, 15 crewmen for the health, welfare, training, tactical employment of discipline of 15 soldiers at the age of 21. God bless the army. Talk about leadership. <laughs> and I would think as a tank commander, it takes a lot of people to drive a tank. It's not like you have just one person doing it. That's a lot of moving parts. Communication is probably a real big part of that, right? It takes one person to drive it, but it takes four people to operate it. Um, and so, as you say, there are a lot of moving parts. So the driver, you know, he steers it, goes where you want to go. Uh, but the gunner is responsible for um, shooting the cannon and one of the machine guns. And then the loader is the other position who's responsible for literally taking the ammunition out of stowage, the correct ammunition, there's two types or more, putting it in the cannon and making it ready to go. Uh, and we we practiced a lot. Trust me, we practiced a lot. So we were uh, quite good at it. Um, but that's also why the American Army wins. But he, it goes back to teamwork, we're working as a team and a tight team, not just... Fantastic amounts of teamwork. Right. Oh, I will tell you, you want to talk about a tight team. When you, when you basically have your, your 60 ton Winnebago RV with all of its cannons and such, and you're crammed into it, and it's a pretty small space, 
trust me, you get very close with your crew very quickly. Uh, fortunately, I lost my sense of smell a long time ago and get a little rank, but great times. How long were you a uh, tank commander? So I did my time um, in Germany for three years. And um, it was interesting that probably for, for two out of those three years, I was actually in tanks. And I want to tell you a little story that, that tells you that sometimes there are unforecasted blessings because things can happen that you don't like, but it turns out they're for the good. So um, I really wanted to be what was called the scout platoon leader. This was the person with the six Bradleys. They were out front smoothing and, and sneaking around and all of that really sexy business. Um, and instead, I got told I was going to be the support platoon leader. Well, that's logistics. That was, um, at that time, 40 trucks full of uh, um, tons and tons of ammunition and tens of thousands of gallons of fuel and all. Very um, difficult and not at all sexy work. Turned out I was pretty good at it. And I, I complained. I said, I thought I was doing well. I wanted to be the scout platoon leader. And they said, you know, any idiot can, can command six vehicles, all of which have um, excellent non-commissioned officers in each one and not one but two radios. But you have to shepherd, you know, 40 truck drivers. And there are only two radios in the whole organization, you and your sergeant. And you're responsible for all of this stuff. And if you fail, we fail because Everybody we fails, won't have yeah. any fuel or ammunition. They said, you really got the most important job, but not at all sexy. And what I just learned from that was sometimes you... It's like the Rolling Stones. You don't always get what you want, but you get what you need. And that subsequently informed my career later on in the military. So where did you go after Germany? You said four years there. So Yeah, so three years in Germany. Then I went back to um, actually Fort Knox, Kentucky for school. And then I went to Fort Stewart, Georgia, where we were part of the Rapid Deployment Force. Um, and for most of that time, I was a tank company commander, meaning I had 14 of those tanks. Um, and we we went we did not fight any wars. We uh, we we did go to some pretty cool places, uh, Turkey, Egypt, Jordan, the National Training Center in the Mojave Desert, which is a cool place, but really kind of sucky. Um, I met my wife there. That was pretty cool. And then uh, uh, Mojave I also desert. <laughs> no, at, at Fort Stewart. Oh. Um, but I also we also um, I also got some experience with um, computers and battle simulation. Remember, this is. I mean, this is 1980, 80, 87 to 89. So it's we had only just kind of gotten, you know, personal com desktop computers. But I ran the Computer Battle Simulation Center for a while. And then they sent me off to school for a while, subsequent to go to graduate school. I missed the first Gulf War by two weeks. All my friends went, but, but I missed it. Um, I made up for it later. So the Army, I always wanted to go to grad school. And the Army said, well would you like to go teach at West Point? And so they sent me to graduate school to University of South Carolina for my master's in geography. And then they sent me to West Point, the United States Military Academy at West Point, New York to teach where um, I did teach geography for two years. And what I learned there, and there's another unforecasted blessing, but what I learned there is that I love to teach as much as I love to soldier. Well, two years into a three-year tour, they said, um, we're reaping the peace dividend from the Cold War, which means you're fired. Um, we don't need you anymore. Um, it wasn't quite that bad. The Army gave me a great deal, a great buyout. I went right to the Army Reserve, no break in service. And on the GI Bill, I went right back to grad school to get my PhD. Um, and that's how I ended up in the Army Reserve for the next 20 years and also ended up getting my PhD and then eventually coming to Northwest where, and this is my 25th year. And so I did both the Army and Northwest for all that time. So why geography? Why, was there nothing in like government or why not that? And why not public policy or something like that? 
another unforecasted blessing. So I applied for the uh, the um, political science department, history and geography. I'd never had a geography course. The other guys weren't interested. Geography gave me the job. Uh, and what I learned was, once again, this was something I didn't know I was going to love, but I, I did love it because geography is a synthesizing discipline. You know, my specialties were political geography. You take political science, give it a spatial focus, you get political geography. Military geography, take military science, give it a spatial focus, you get military geography. So a synthesizing discipline. Um, and I never got bored. I mean, no matter, I've taught so many different things, regional courses and military geography, political geography, just all sorts of stuff. And I never get bored. And so it turned out, worked out to be great. So Army Reserve, what's the difference between reserve and regular, the main differences? So basically, we have three components. We have the active army, the army reserve, and the army national guard. So when I was on active duty, that was 365, 24-7, my full-time job. Um, for the guard and reserves, the guard, of course, belongs to the states in peacetime and does disaster relief and things of that nature. And then they can be federalized and sent off to fight, as, as they have done in the last 20 years. The Army Reserve is federal all the time, so always reports to the president. But Army Reservists and Guardsmen are, are uh, part-time soldiers. And so the minimum requirement is one weekend a month and two weeks a year. I would tell you that there was a little while while I did the minimum, but as I gained rank, it, it became um, kind of all-encompassing to the point where I was doing three weekends a month. They would have let me do four, but you know you can't, you can't work all the time, as well as a good chunk of the summer. And then not to mention a couple of wars or a war with a couple of deployments. And um, at one time, the university said, so just a question who's your full-time job, us or them? And I said, you know, what if we said I had two full-time jobs and we left it at that? I mentioned a couple of wars. Um, I ended up going to Kosovo in 2001 on a peacekeeping mission for four and a half months. Northwest was great about letting me go. And part of that was because the things I was doing in Kosovo, I actually got a good article out of it with a friend, but they were the things that I, I actually specifically was asked because of my academic and military experience, the combination of both. I got back in August of 2001, went, uh, had four days from deployment to going back to the classroom. And then you know what happened on September the 11th. And I said that day, we're going to war. Well, February the 10th, 2003, we got mobilized. And I served as the Theater Movement Control Battalion Commander for, we called it then the Invasion of Iraq. Now we call it the Liberation of Iraq. And Northwest was fantastic. I subsequently went back in 2010-11 as a Brigadier General. And basically, Northwest gave me uh, the equivalent to three years off to, to go do that. But I, but it was a lot of experience that really informed my teaching. So so I've done both. And when you came back, do you, I remember Northwest kind of capitalized on that experience that you'd had you know, as a brigadier general, and you brought that kind of to the institutional approach of Northwest, right? You did, you were still a professor, but you were doing more than just that as well for us, right? Well, yeah, I mean, so I was just talking to my emergency uh, planning class, emergency management planning class today about, about that experience. And one of the things, you know, in a job interview, they always say, what was one of your greatest challenges? Well, one of my greatest challenges was like, okay, let's, let's take my, my organization, the 103rd Expeditionary Sustainment Command, Let's go to Iraq. Let's do a, um, a relief in place with a unit that's already there. That's in the middle of this mission. It was all called our strategic reposturing. So what we're going to do is we're going to go from 130,000 troops to 80,000 troops in four months because President Obama said so. Um, we got there exactly in the middle. And that's the equivalent of moving everybody, every man, woman and child in St. Joseph, Missouri, and all of their household goods and vehicles 
across the planet. Um, it was a very challenging proposition. And oh, by the way, we still had to sustain the other 50,000 troops. I didn't even mention the tens of thousands of contractors. Uh, and, we, and we still have to do our mission in Iraq. And in fact, the government accounting office said, your plan won't work, you'll never make it. We were 10 days early and under budget. So there you go. But, but it was a huge undertaking. It wasn't, it wasn't my personal doing by any means, but I had a contribution to make. And so with that kind of a, of a, of a, a really significant undertaking, um, having at one time commanded 11,000 troops in Iraq, for most of the time it was 5,000, Northwest said, you know, that's, um, that's pretty good. That's, uh, that's, that's pretty worthwhile. Um, and they leveraged that for multiple things, certainly with my teaching and opportunities to serve and such. But uh, that was an interesting time. And subsequently, I went on to do things like teach American military history, because even though I'm not a historian, I used to I used to be a little snide and say, well, I might not be a historian, but I have made history. Um, so I could probably teach it. And they were like, ha, 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 that's cute. Um, but they let me do it. It was great fun. But basically, I've been very fortunate that I've been able to leverage both my military and university experiences together. One of the things, probably the biggest change for me was I never asked to be a department chair. When I came back from Iraq after you know the equivalent of six semesters of having let me go to do military duty, basically the, the dean at the time said, it's kind of payback. You're going to be a department chair. I also want people to realize that at Northwest, nobody ever lies. The unit, the institution will never lie to you. They told me, we need you to be the interim chair of biology just for one year, 12 years later. <laughs> yeah. And I also point out that um, I never volunteered to be a chair. I never asked. I got voluntold, but I was happy to do it and happy to serve. So take those unforecasted blessings as they were and or opportunities and rock on. How did you find Northwest? I mean, so there was a little jump there from where you were training and going to grad school. How did you stumble upon Northwest of all places? As with most people, and, and I will tell you that the only time I had ever been to the Midwest was in um, the December, January of 1990 timeframe to go to Fort Leavenworth, Kansas for the Combined Arms and Services Staff School. And if you told me that a kid from San Francisco was going to live in Maryville, Missouri for my 25th year, I would have said, like, you're on crack, because that's a good urban drug, right? So how did I find Northwest? Well, it was, um, you know, time to graduate from graduate school. And so I was on the job market, and I had um, I had offers from the University of South Carolina at Aiken, which was only 90 miles from my wife's mother's house. And then I had the offer here. I interviewed it both. And um, I said, this is very different from what I'm used to. But um, this is a great place, very robust geography. I mean, how do you not love Northwest, right? Now, I have to tell you also, when I interviewed, it was uh, April, no leaves on the trees. I thought, I didn't even realize they had trees until next spring. And um, brown, gloomy. And they said, um, we have to get you out of here. And I said, have I screwed up the interview that badly? They said, no, there's a blizzard coming. I'm like, bro, a blizzard in April, you are not selling it. But the people were so great. The institution was so great. I thought it was a great gloomy place. But once, you know, once spring came, I'm like, oh, this place is freaking beautiful. It's an arboretum. And I mean, I guess, you know, talk is cheap. But um, the experience 25 years later, having raised my children here and intending to hang out at least for a while after retirement, says a lot about Maryville and Northwest. So that's how I got here. They gave me a job. You mentioned emergency disaster management and being one of the founding folks of that. Do you want to tell us, you know, what that is and kind of how that came to be at Northwest? 
So out of the blue, one of my buddies, um, all the way back from my army days, calls me up and he says, I'm doing this this work with Indian Rivers uh, Community College in Florida. And we're doing this really cool kind of, almost kind of a military exercise, but it's actually a humanitarian relief disaster aid exercise and um, field exercise. And I, I need a role player and I need you to play like the uh, like a, a supervisor honcho guy from the um, Red Cross in Geneva, Switzerland. Um, and so I did. And of course, I had a ball. And um, later on, he said, hey, um, that was fantastic. Do you, do you want to come down next spring and do this? Well, I said, yeah, but it, it's, a, it's, it's a deal for college students. Let me let me bring some students. Well, that that started a deal. And we said, hmm, they have this program here in emergency management. I wonder. And, and several other colleagues said, you know, we could do that. We could have a, a minor in emergency, an interdisciplinary minor, and we called it comprehensive crisis response at the time. And so we started the CCR program only as a minor. Um, and it was great. And uh, people really liked it. And then, um, the, the, and then the students demanded a major. Now, we weren't sure about a major. We said, we don't know that you can get jobs, but the students demanded it. So we, we got the major and everybody did really well. Not, it was it was interesting, not just in emergency management, but in all sorts of other fields as well, insurance and business and all sorts of stuff. Well, then marketing came and they said, when you Google CCR, you get uh, Credence Clearwater Revival. A John Fogarty. Yeah. <laughs> not, not comprehensive crisis response. And we said, oh, they said, and it's all about the Google search. We said, well, we're not going to do emergency management because that that has a certain connotation of you're a bunch of FEMA geeks, right? A bunch of FEMA bureaucrats, which is not a bad thing, but that's not what we wanted to do. So we said, how about emergency and disaster management? So we went from being a Southern rock band to what EDM, which I thought was like a Dutch cheese, but the students advised me it's electronic dance music. So the EDM program has taken off. It's great. It's my labor of love. I wrote the course and still teach it on um, Homeland Security and Defense. I wrote the course. Um, I'm back to teaching it next semester on principles of humanitarian relief. I'm currently teaching um, emergency management planning and disaster response and recovery uh, next semester, along with humanitarian relief. It's also mo uh, vulnerability and mitigation. We decided that uh, because we have these experiential requirements that we would we needed an exercise here. So we started Missouri Hope, which is coming up seven, six, seven, and eight October, going gangbusters. Um, and then eventually a colleague said, you know, we do this, we need one for New York. So now we have New York Hope, which we just came back from this summer, the State Preparedness Training Center in New York. And so it is my labor of love. And some people are like, you poor thing, you're having to do double duty as both the department chair and the EDM program coordinator. And I said, I don't know if you'll get the cultural reference, but don't cry for me, Argentina, you know, Vida. I said, man, I'm having a ball. I'm loving what I'm doing. I'm loving working with the students. And um, I mentioned that I'm going to be uh, retiring next year. And somebody said, well, you're going out with a bang. And I said, yeah, I, I don't No One will think I retired on active duty. I worked until the, until the very end. So, um, but I love what I'm doing. I'm having a ball. Do you want to talk more about Missouri Hope? That's such a unique experience at Northwest and to the EDM program that, I, you know, people may not be aware of what that is. Yeah. So, you know, Northwest is all about profession-based learning. Um, we take that very seriously. Uh, I would argue that that, for example, my natural sciences people have been doing profession-based learning since they since you know the first test tube they ever used. The EDM program is interesting, and other people have done this, but but for we're we're kind of a, pro, a poster child for profession-based learning in the sense that it requires an internship. Lots of people require an internship, but we require three credits of field experience, and people typically have more. But if you're going to create a curricular requirement, you have to 
create a capability. So Missouri Hope is a, we, here's how we phrase it. <clears throat> I'll use my, my um, announcer voice. Missouri Hope is a three-day high-intensity, high-fidelity, meaning super intense and super uh, realistic, um, emergency management and disaster response exercise, really disaster response exercise, that envisions uh, two tornadoes that have ripped through Nottoway County, leaving a path of destruction. Uh, your role as a, as a, a participant is you'll join a 12-person community emergency response team where you will go and uh, basically save lives and property and save the day. In the meantime, you'll rotate your leadership positions so that you actually learn a lot about not just technical skills like search and rescue and firefighting and first aid and things of that nature, but also what we call process skills in terms of a great focus on leadership, um, active followership, being a member of a highly effective team um, in a really highly intense environment. Uh, typically we work from, I mean, you get up at six in the morning, we're working by eight and you're not done till, till 12, 11 or 12, or sorry, tw um, 10 or 11. Uh, so you get your six hours of sleep. But for many people, that's like, whew, that's a, oh, that's very challenging. And um, people have said it's a life-changing experience because they had, they were put into high pressure situations, very safe situations, both physically and psychologically. We pay a lot of attention to that, but that they did things they never thought they could do. They demonstrated that they could lead teams in high intensity environments. They never thought they could do that. And I just uh, thrilled to have that opportunity to help people learn those things. Yeah, you mentioned it being a poster. We at, literally in our office have a poster of Missouri Hope underneath the definition of profession-based learning. So we're always singing its praises to our our shareholders as well. So yes, that's good. A, I, I appreciate that. That's yeah. an awesome experience. Every student I know that's gone through it comes back and they they say that same thing. You know, it is a life changing thing. It, some of them change their majors and their career plans based on that. So yeah, it is proving the the point of PBL at Northwest. I think you know Missouri yeah. Hope is a poster child for that. Absolutely. I think it's interesting that. Um, the, the grads we've had, and some have gone into emergency management in either the government. I mean, some people are in uh, Nebraska emergency management. We've got people that are just killing it. They're just doing great. But for example, we had someone that went to be a, um, a transportation uh, account manager for one of the major trucking companies. And he said, the stuff I learned about uh, logistics and transportation in principles of humanitarian relief gave me a leg up on everybody else to include people who have been in the business for a long time. Um, and, and, and pretty much everybody else who has gone to different places, even if it's had nothing to do with, you know, emergency management per se, said it was, it was the skills of learning to work as a staff member, um, being a planner, being an operator, um, working admin finance, logistics. Every organization has got those and it's made me very successful. Um, and I would also tell you that our profession-based learning, you know, everybody goes to class, everybody learns to write well, according to their their deal when they go to college. I write well, I speak well, I'm a critical thinker. And we do that, sure, but other people do that. When I talk to or write letters and talk about Missouri Hope and say, I have seen people under pressure. I have seen what they're about when they're tired, they're dirty, they're hungry, they're stressed. I hear from, uh, I get calls from uh, HR reps that say, tell me more about this because this really sets your students up away from the rest. And I'm like, let me tell you, buddy. Also an interesting connection between many, many moons ago, the unsexy job, right? The the blessing in disguise and the continuity through that of recognizing for you, recognizing the importance of those skills, right? And translating that into a unique learning experience, right? On the other end of 
helping students to gain those types of skills. I mean, you know, for, for our office as well, we kind of pride ourselves and obviously not out in disaster career day. We will not talk, call that a disaster, but it can be, um, but it's not often. Operators, <laughs> right? We pull, and I, I'm the same. I, I have student employees. I had a student employee who pulled off this huge event with hundreds of employers and they're getting real life in the moment operating skills um, that may not be, you know, I went out and X, Y, Z, but they actually hands-on did the thing and they have that accomplishment in their pocket to take out with them after they graduate. Yeah. And in their portfolio as well. I want to mention one other thing that I learned that I think is of interest to students. It's a good lesson. So, you know, when I was a young lieutenant, I was kind of an arrogant young man. Um, I mean, I was a tank platoon leader in Germany and M1 Abrams tanks, slash and dash and cannons and speed and all of that kind of stuff. Over time, I actually learned that um, that really wasn't my forte. Being being the, the the killer at the sharp end of the spear required everybody else. Well, our side needs to win, but we need to we need to kill everybody else so they lose. That that was not really what I'm about. Um, I'm really about working together with other people as a support person, as an enabler to help others be successful. I think that's why I love teaching so much. Is it's all about that. Once I figured that out. And once I was okay with not being, you know, Mr. Super Macho superhero person, but being, you know, looking at the term enabler in a good way and um, recognizing that I I was never going to be, you know, the the superstar. I was always going to be the supporting player. I'm never going to get an Academy Award for for best performance. But uh, once I uh, figured that out, I was so much more comfortable with myself and I was so much better at what I did. And, you know, there's a, an old saying that amateurs deal, deal with tactics, professionals deal with logistics. So the people who really knew were, were appreciative of what we did. But I think it's a matter of, of being willing to recognize what you're good at and being comfortable in your own skin and happy with that. Do you view being the chair of a department the same way? I will tell you that being the chair of the department, I, at first I used to joke a lot about how do I get out of this? And then I stopped doing that. Being the chair of the department, I will tell you that I always got my leadership actualization out of the military, and I, I did get voluntold. And my first year was tough. I mean, they put me in there because it, they knew it would be tough. But what I figured out was I'm making a contribution here. Um, I, my wife points out, you like to be in charge and you like to be in the know. And I said, yeah, but in my other job, I'm a general and I'm in charge and I'm in the know. But she was right. For me, it's purely servant leadership. It was about the fact that I'm making a contribution. I'm helping other people be successful. What I, I mean, and I'm not a member of natural sciences. I'm a member of humanities and social sciences. But what I told them as the chair is my, I expect you, the reason we hired you is to be the expert in your field. I'm the opposite of micromanagement. I will, I, I, I am unable to micromanage your teaching. What I am here to do is get the resources you need to be successful. And then of course, to take care of the administration and hold everybody accountable to what we're all collectively supposed to do. So really servant leadership. Do I enjoy it? I don't not enjoy it. I don't hate it. Do I want to get rid of it? No, because I contribute. Um, is it my favorite thing in the world? No. But I think that that's another lesson for people is if you if you have a contribution to make, you should make it. That's really good advice. I, I, are you familiar by chance? I doubt it. But just by chance, are you familiar with the movie Starship Troopers? I yes. am. Starship Troopers. So, so good. Johnny Rico, Lieutenant Radzak gets killed by the big bug. And um, Doogie Hauser, you know, what Neil Patrick Harris says to Johnny Rico, says, uh, Rico, I need another lieutenant. You want the job? And Rico's response is perfect. He says, 
I'll take it until they kill me or you find somebody better. That to me is the epitome of selfless service. I'll take it until they kill me. I will do it to the bitter end. Or you find somebody better, in which case I should step aside and let them do it. Selfless service to the max. Yes. <laughs> All right. Excellent. Well, we appreciate your selfless service. So thank you. All right. Well, that will do it for another episode of Behind the Bearcat. And we'll talk to you next time.